to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, February 19th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, February 20th. Today, I'm on air with my co-host, Jasmine Smith. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Just, you know, staying inside, staying warm. How are you? I'm doing well. I can't complain. I can't complain at all. And shout out to our other co-host, Emily, who's not feeling well today. I hope you feel better and join us back again next week. All right. So on the docket for today's episode, our local news story will be talking about the murder of Christina Yuna Lee in Chinatown. For national news, we will cover a little bit about the funeral of Amir Locke and any of the progress or non-progress being made on no-knock warrants in Minneapolis. For our world news story, we'll be talking about the Ottawa trucker protests. And our good news story will be about a New York woman who was cured of HIV. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news. Jasmine, you're up. Um, so this, um, this, this is just a rundown of the basics of the case. Uh, this information is from Jezebel. Christina Yuna Lee was a 35-year-old Korean-American digital producer for an online music platform called Splice. She had just moved to her apartment on Christie Street in Chinatown in New York City in 2021. Her alleged killer is Asamad Nash, a 25-year-old homeless man who followed her home after 4 a.m. on Sunday, opened the apartment building door before it closed, followed her up six flights of stairs, and stabbed her up to 40 times. A neighbor heard screams and called 911. According to the prosecutor, Daphna Yoran, when police arrived and began knocking at the door, Nash's voice, seemingly mimicking a woman's tone, told them, we don't need the police here, go away. Uh, Nash has been arrested and is being held without bail. He's also been formally indicted for Christina's murder. Um, So this is a deeper dive. This article was written by the city. It's in the city.nyc. Uh, The article was written by Greg B. Smith and Clifford Michelle on February 15th. The title is Christina Lee's alleged killer had arrest, but no mental health intervention. Uh, So I'm going to read the majority of it, but, you know, it's been cut down for the sake of time. Since the brutal killing of Christina Yuna Lee in the pre-dawn hours of Sunday, a chorus of concern has grown about whether the accused attacker should have been red flagged and steered into the mental health system. Five weeks before the killing, Nash had been charged with an illegal sale of a subway fare, escaping from the police after being caught damaging MetroCard machines and punching a commuter in the face. During his January 7th arraignment, Judge Herb Moses ordered Nash freed without having to come up with bail. The judge did impose some restrictions, placing Nash in what's called supervised release, a program that required the defendant to report to authorities each month, twice in person and once by phone. But during that appearance, the judge could have imposed another requirement that Nash be referred to mental health professionals for psychological examination, and if needed, professional treatment. That did not happen, nor was Nash's mental state addressed Monday when he was back in Manhattan court, this time to face much more serious charges of second-degree murder and other crimes related to his alleged stabbing of Lee. 
The shocking crime has enraged New Yorkers, and on Tuesday, community members and elected officials gathered at Sarah D. Roosevelt Park across the street from Lee's apartment to rally for an improvement of public services with a particular focus on mental health. Organizers called for several moments of silence and a coalition of groups ranging from Asian-led community organizations to violence interrupters and civil rights organizations called for immediate drastic improvements in the city's mental health services and public safety. Um, so this is a little bit of background on like some other crimes that Nash had been um, charged with in the past. In sep on September 23rd at a subway, subway stock, at a subway stop, a block away from where Lee lived, uh, Nash sold an undercover cop a Metro card for $2, was arrested, and the police found a packet of K2 in his pocket. According to the complaint, Nash said to the officer, can I get my K2 back? I love K2. So if you're not familiar, K2 is sometimes called spice or like synthetic weed. It's has some like natural elements and then some are chemicals that can cause people to hallucinate. Um, he was given a desk appearance ticket and then released. A week later, he confronted a commuter who swiped in another rider and then he punched the man in the face. He also had a history of jamming up MetroCard machines at Herald Square so that it wouldn't accept bills to try to force people to buy swipes off of him. Uh, he also had an extensive criminal record, uh, including crimes he was accused of in New Jersey. Um, starting back from when he was a minor, like armed robbery and other offenses. Um, so most of the beginning of the article is focused on how, you know, there's community people who are worried about the state of mental health and services for the homeless in the area that may have in some way contributed to Nash being out and, uh, you know, able to attack someone. Uh, towards the end of the article, they start to talk more about like Asian community advocacy groups that see what happened to Lee or worry that what happened to Lee is related to a dramatic spike in anti-Asian bias attacks that have plagued the city over the last two years. Uh, so far, Nash has not been charged with a hate crime. In December 2021, the NYPD reported a 361% jump in the number of anti-Asian bias incidents over the prior year with a particular spike in the city subway system. Uh, so at the vigil that took place on Tuesday, Queens Council Member Julie Wan said that the last two years have been difficult for Asian American women who don't feel safe in the city streets. Juan noted the fact that Lee decided to take an Uber home the morning she was killed rather than the D train, which has a stop just steps away from her apartment building. Again and again, we're seeing that Asian women are being attacked at two thirds of a rate higher than any other race. Whether it is a hate crime or you're saying that it doesn't qualify to be a hate crime, I need you to acknowledge the gender as well as the race of the woman who was attacked. You cannot erase that from their story. Afterwards, attendees led a small procession to Lee's apartment and left white flowers in front of a tree next to the entryway. Uh, so if you're able, I would suggest that you look up the full article. It goes into a lot more detail. And again, it's on The City. The title is Christina Lee's Alleged Killer Had Arrest But No Mental Health Intervention.
Um, so yeah, it was a very shocking, extremely sad crime um, that's obviously garnered a lot of attention. Um, have you heard about this, Reese, or was it on your radar? No, it wasn't. And it's really sad to know that this there's like been such a series with this one individual of mental health breaks or just kind of issues all this time. Um, and here we are. This is what happens when people don't have access to resources, but also like um, it does feel like a continuation of what we were seeing a lot last year with the increase of Asian hate um, crimes across the city. Yeah, and I also wanted to note um, after, so in this article, they mentioned that they put up white flowers, like there was a memorial outside of where she was, where Christina Yuna Lee was killed. And in recent days, someone has defaced it, like they destroyed it. So it's oh important. Oh my goodness, that's awful. It, yeah, it is awful. So I know I saw images of the memorial and some of the signs that were put up were like stop AAPI hate, like stop Asian hate. Um, so even if you look at this individual person, like her attacker, who um, everything I've read about his history, like there's other people, like the man that he punched was a 63-year-old commuter. Um, on the New York Post, he was. Describing- I remember that story. I remember yeah. that one. Well, you know, I'm sure there's been a lot of stories. So I, maybe it was the same one or maybe it was something else. But the guy said that he saw Nash and said, that's the guy who punched me. And there's another woman, I think her name is Christina Rivera, who also lives in the area who said like she recognized him from the same, from the Grand Street subway stop. If you're not familiar, like that's a stop that's in New York City's Manhattan's Chinatown. And she said, you know, he was asking for money and she ignored him and he started like cursing at her, like calling her like a fucking bitch and things like that. So, you know, I say that to say he also lived or was staying in a homeless shelter that was in the area that was very close to Lee's apartment. Um, so it doesn't really sound like at this point there's a reason to believe that he targeted her specifically because of her race. However, like the fact that, you know, after this memorial was put up and you see, you know, the way whoever attacked it responded, you can't really separate it out completely from like a rising phenomenon of people like being hostile to yeah. Asian people like in general like in the response to what happened and yeah um things of that nature so wow this is really really unfortunate definitely um you know I hate to sound like this but it's important that we be vigilant and look out and see you know look out for one another um because we never know you know anything can happen to anybody at any time but you know in situations like this I think sometimes you don't necessarily have to go save someone, but bringing attention to it, you know, um, that something's going on or just kind of asking someone if they're okay. If you see something that looks, you know, strange, sometimes that'll devoid somebody from hurting somebody if, you know, another person takes notice. But of course, a lot of this stuff is inevitable just because they're, you know, not well people and people with ill intent out there. So. Yeah, and it seemed like she did do what a lot of women do, like especially if you live alone and it's late at night or very early in the morning, it seems like she opted to take a car as opposed to taking the subway, probably thinking like this is safer. 
So, you know, I really do like, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, it's like, you can be the most vigilant person in the world. And if there's somebody that is right, like if you happen to cross the wrong person's path at the wrong time, like all the vigilance isn't going to help you because like her neighbors did hear her and they called the cops. It took the police and whatever it like 90 minutes to get into the apartment. So like they heard her fight, like fighting for her life. But, you know, it really does seem to me like the root cause issue is, you know, the fact that someone in Nash's condition fell through so many cracks for so many years. And then this seems like it was the culmination of like what happens like in that situation. Because it doesn't make sense to me. Like if you, if someone is known to be like, they don't really have a stable address and they have such a history for them to like uh, physically attack someone. And then the response is to basically give them some appointments where they have to show up. Like what, it doesn't make sense to think that they would appear. You know what I'm saying? It's not like this is, you know, it's like someone who is at that point in their life, there needs to be some additional like interventions besides just giving someone a desk appearance ticket that they're not going to show up to that they might not even understand fully. Yeah. Criminalization of the homeless or people who just need help is never, never helpful. I feel. Um, And at this point in New York, like over the last year, you've seen such an increase of, you know, mental health issues, attacks, assaults, people just really, at wit's end with a lot of things, you know what I mean? And there needs to be um, layers to to help. It don't look the same for everybody, you know? It's a shame that I don't really think people see the connections between things like the cost of living going up, like how inaccessible housing has become. You know, the fact that you have, you know, rents are so astronomical these days where like even people, people that I've known that are a level or two or more above me, salary wise, position wise, living with two, three other people to make rent, you know, and if that's how people like that are living, like if you're poor working class, if that, if there's that on and on top of it, like you have some other issues going on, like it's not going to be likely that you're going to be able to stay housed in New York city. So it's like the more that that churn kind of happens where people end up on the street, the less that there's actual real concrete help to stop that from happening, the more you're going to see people fall down that rabbit hole of then potentially like becoming addicted to something you know, their condition gets increasingly worse where like trying to reintegrate gets harder and harder. And then you just see like this avalanche, you know, that starts to build up and then ultimately something like this will happen, you know? So it's really, I feel terrible for her family. Everything I've seen from former colleagues and friends that knew her was that, you know, she was a really bright light. And it's, you know, I think it's every woman's nightmare that something like this could happen to you. And it's just really a shame that it, that it took place. Absolutely. Prayers up for her family and her community. And um, we're going to go ahead and take our first music break. I think it's a good time. 
This first track today is called The Garden Path and it's by Kamanzi Washington. We'll be right back.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news story. Um, This story, um, I found two versions of it. One of them is on NPR. The title of it is Amir Lockwood Still Be Alive If Not for No-Knock Warrants, Reverend Al Sharpton Says. Um, And that is on NPR. Org. And the other one is from The Root, and this one is called Hundreds Mourn at a Lock Funeral, The Black Man Shot by Police During No-Knock Search, uh, Shorpton Gave the Eulogy. This one is by Rachel Pilgrim. We'll begin there. Hundreds gathered Thursday at Shiloh Temple International Ministries in Minneapolis, where 20-year-old Dante Wright, another black man killed at the hands of Minneapolis police, was funeralized last year. This time, 22-year-old Amir Locke was the one in the casket at the altar. Amir was not guilty of anything but being a young black man in America, Reverend Al Sharpton said during the eulogy, according to ABC News. That's why it didn't matter that Amir's name wasn't on the warrant. Because no, we don't have the right to name, sorry, because we don't have a right to name to a name in the eyes of some in this country. We are nameless suspects. As the route previously recorded, Locke was sworn by police officers executing a search warrant in the early morning of February 2nd. The officer surprised him while he was sleeping under a blanket on the couch. Locke drew his gun, which he was licensed to carry, then officers fatally shot him. Not only was his name not on the warrant, but it wasn't even his apartment. Locke was killed within 10 seconds of the officer's arrival. Mayor Jacob Frey was pa- has paused no-knock warrants as activists and families of police brutality victims call for not just change, but justice. Locke's family plans to fight for the law in the 22-year-old's name. You had time to assess the situation, but you didn't. So you don't need further training. You need to be fired, Locke's aunt Linda Tyler said at the funeral. You ambushed my nephew. You took his life. And while you did, while he didn't matter to you, he mattered to his whole family. He mattered to his community. Um, here's a small piece from the Associated Press. Frey has opposed the moratorium of such warrants while the city reexamines its policy. The State Bureau of Criminal Criminal Apprehension, crim, sorry, the State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is investigating lock shooting. While the funeral was happening, the House Public Safety Committee heard legislation that would significantly limit the use of no-knock warrants. The bill, authored by Representative Althina Hollins of St. Paul, only allows such warrants in a handful of extingent circumstances, such as kidnapping and human trafficking. It goes further than measures passed last year, which made it more difficult for officers to seek no-knock warrants. Last year's legislation requires that applications for no-knock warrants be approved by a chief law enforcement officer and another supervisor. It also requires officers to say whether the warrant can be executed in daytime hours and explain why officers can't detain a suspect or search a residence by other means. Several activists who testified in support of the new bill urged lawmakers to pass it, calling last year's legislation a watered-down version of what the state needs. When asked if they have spoken to Senate Republicans, they shook their heads no. 
family members of police brutality victims George, George Floyd, who was killed in Minneapolis, was also in attendance at the funeral. We are no longer going to be your nameless suspects, Sharpton said. Amir has a name. His name wasn't on your warrant, but his name's going to be in your law book. So that's pretty much the gist um, of the story. Um, it's another case coming out of Minneapolis again, you know, which after everything that's happened there. Um, wow, it just it seems like it'll never really stop happening. You know, I, I don't think that they've actually implemented any of the laws that we were working on during George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's death. Um, anywhere, <laughs> anywhere, like they haven't really passed any legislation at all. Um, yeah. So they were, they had a no knock warrant and they went into the wrong person's apartment. Is that basically what happened? Yep. They went into the wrong person's apartment and then they had, they didn't have a warrant with this person's name on it that they killed. See, normally when you have have a warrant, a no-knock warrant, it's served to a specific person, right? It's not just like, oh, we're going to bomb this house because, or we're going up in this house because of whatever reason. It's It's got to have a, a person's name attached to it. So it, it had a name on it, but it was not a mere lock. It, was, exactly. it had someone's name on it. Yes, but it was not a mere lock. So how did they come? Did you see anything about how they came to go to his apartment? I'm, I haven't seen anything specifically on that. I'm assuming that is, you know, a mistake. That's what they normally say. Um, let me look a little bit further, but I didn't see anything that said that. Yeah, it's really, it does sound very much like what happened with Breonna Taylor, like exactly. very similar, where you can just, when you have people that have the ability to use deadly force and they have these really broad powers over regular civilians that's extremely dangerous because like you're at the mercy of their whims how careful or careless they are and there's literally nothing you can do about it and you know all these people that talk about gun rights and all this other stuff like it's very obvious that that does not work if you're the wrong type of person because exactly. you know they bust into someone busts into your home you don't know what's going on and it's early in the morning like that if you're someone who you know you have a gun for your own protection it would exactly. make perfect sense for you to S- shoot be like what is going on you know yeah. and like take your gun out or something but it's like you're so you know you're just supposed to trust that the people are who they say they are especially you know that you didn't do anything where exactly. anyone would be coming Exactly. You know, well, it's, it's unacceptable. It is. It says in this, um, the other article on NPR, Locke wasn't named in the warrant and did not live in the apartment. Family members called his killing an execution, noting the video shows an officer kicking the sofa and suggested Locke was start, startled, awake, and disoriented. They have, no, they have also pushed back against police saying Locke was shot after he pointed his gun at officers. So they have the body cam that shows he was wrapped up in a blanket on the, on the couch. And he had the gun in his hand, apparently, or he reached for it or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, he had a he had a right to have the gun. It was licensed. Right. So but I it don't, wasn't even his apartment. <laughs> he so lived was, there. Wasn't, he did not. It was not where he lived. He was like visiting. So were they looking for the person who lived there? But he wasn't there. Amir was. 
I think that's how it's presenting. It's not very clear in either one of these articles here. So we'll have to do a little bit more digging for some specifics. Um, but yeah, but, I mean, but even so, that's something that happens as well. It's like they might, you know, let's say they're looking for some guy, but right. then they show up and the only people there are like his mother and his kid. And then they get traumatized, brutalized, place ransacked. Exactly. You know, and that's not that's not right either. Like, even if it was the actual address, it's like, you know, you have a judge, jury, ex- executioner situation going on. Exactly when you know they're that trigger happy it makes no sense like you the I one mean, with the bulletproof everything you got a team of people with you like why <laughs> you know like why came in, it says they came years? in they came in with a key it was four officers surrounding the couch it's crazy girl jesus christ that's uh, and how old was he 22 22 wow that's yeah this is just awful and you would think that after this year like I, I mean you know these lawmakers just sit up there and you know take our money and do whatever they want to do but it's just it like we need this fucking legislation this shit is happening to people because people is just reckless you know and it's it's crazy it's not like we're it's just whatever I just get so tired of it's so clear it's so very clear so yeah, very clear. It's, it's not sustainable and it does make you wonder if like how many things that are presented as like it was a mistake like you don't fully know like how many things might be intentional or you know as a reaction to people complaining and protesting against uh, these types of killings happening, like how often or, you know, what the attitude is within the police department as far as like, we're not going to be more careful or we're going to be more reckless. And what are you going to do about it? Like, you just don't, you can't fully trust that it was an honest mistake. Exactly. You know, and but, this is what, this is why they got people sleeping with their guns. I mean, you know, I, th- just the concept of that alone. It's like, you know, we have to be vigilant in our own houses. We have to we have to move like that. You know what I'm saying? It's it's really it's like you're damned if you do and damned Damned if you you don't don't. because people will be like, well, you should be prepared to defend yourself. But then if you do that, it's like, well, not that way. But then if (laughs) you have no weapon and then something happens to you, it's like somehow that's your fault too. I mean, like look at. I remember very distinctly like when Philando Castile was killed and that was also caught on camera and he was as calm and relaxed you know he was a guy that worked in the school system I think he was like the cafeteria a cafeteria worker everybody Mm -hmm. liked him and it was known like where he was stopped like if you were black like they were going to stop you like it was just a known fact yeah pulled over like was very much like had his hands up was doing all of the right things as far as like being a licensed gun owner with all the paperwork and he was still killed in front of his child and his partner so you know it's like there's really I really want people to think when they talk about like oh if only they had done this because in this state of the world or like of this country there is no right thing to do exactly completely you're totally and completely at the mercy of 
what is allowed the agents of the state that are going to decide what's going what to happen do. with you it's nothing you can say no meek mild behavior that's going to protect you they just over remember the man who was um the caretaker for an adult autistic man and the police shot at him he was on his back with his hands up oh no do you I remember, don't remember that, that one no I mean, because it's so, it happens so often, you forget the names and yeah, the year because so it's constant. And they it shot is. at that man. And it for no discernible reason at all. And it was like, you know, that, oh, you know, that he had, the officer had been charged. I don't know if he was convicted or what, but they recently overturned that decision. Mm. So, you know, there is no, you can't good behavior your way or rule follow your way out of systemic racism nope conscious bias unconscious bias like there's no way to like tiptoe around it and think that you will be safe absolutely you know and i hope more people understand that like he this person was he's basically a kid was sleeping in his bed and now gone for what it can happen to any of us at any time and it's really just fucked up because people really think that, you know, they they talk about reform like it's actually something that can be measured. It almost feels like you just need to destruct the whole thing and come again, you know, but. Yeah, anyway, I mean, I think you already know how I feel about it. It's like you can't reform something when it's this when it's exactly. right to this degree. Exactly. You and to destroy it all together so long like you need to start over with something yep. new because this is not it absolutely and they're not going to relearn how not to be racist <laughs> yeah. that'll never happen that'll never happen so we need to stop anticipating that um anyway prayers up for his family amir Locke's family and all of those people in minneapolis with these fucked up ass police out there um yeah, be thinking of you. Just, you know, hold tight. Do whatever you can to take care of one another. We're going to go ahead and take a musical break before we hop into the next story. This song is Something's Going On, and it's by Coco Roco. We'll be right back.
You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we'll have Jasmine with our world news story. Okay, so um, our co-host Emily could not be with us today, but she was the one who pulled up this world story. Uh, It is concerning the Ottawa truckers protest going on in Canada right now. So these are her, her words. This story comes from a February 10th New York Times Dispatch from Canada by Catherine Porter titled, This is Not My City. Protesters Turn a Quiet Capital Upside Down. The Ottawa protesters are giddy with their sense of collective purpose, but local residents see the demonstration as an unruly, disrespectful, and even dangerous occupation. The article explains, Canada's most important and most notoriously boring city has found itself stuck in a never-ending tailgate party. Giant trucks scatter the roads downtown, stretching for almost a mile in front of the Gothic stone parliament buildings and government offices that feel like they've been snatched from one former motherland, England, and plunked into the new world. Between them, crowds of protesters wander, many wearing Canadian flags as capes or carrying them on hockey sticks and paddles. In makeshift encampments are tents and tables laden with snacks, coffee, mittens, and earplugs. Grills sizzle with hot dogs. The flatbread of one trailer with a crane attached has been converted into a stage, with four loudspeakers erected on it, pumping the classic disco song by Sister Sledge, We Are Family. People dance in the adjacent intersection. This is not my city, said Ellie Charters, age 45 crossing the street before a line of shoulder-to-shoulder tractor cabs, their metal grills festooned in flags, handmade signs, and stuffed toys. Miss Charters, a local resident, called the party scene a sanitization of the protest's darker motives. From the start, the protest, initially organized to oppose a vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers, has attracted the company of far-right, anti-government, and other fringe groups in Canada. In the first days in Ottawa, at least two flags with Nazi swastikas fluttered in the crowd. Many demonstrators were draped in flags that told Prime Minister Justin Trudeau where to go, rudely. They demanded Parliament be dissolved and Mr. Trudeau be removed from office. But when many of the thousands of protesters who first arrived in Ottawa went home, Several hundred truckers held firm. They parked their vehicles and refused to leave, and the police could do little to force them out. Now the protesters who have dug into Ottawa's core for nearly two weeks are giddy with their own sense of collective purpose and so far perceive success. However, many of the residents who live in nearby apartment buildings and renovated heritage homes don't see it as a celebration but as an unruly, disrespectful, and even dangerous occupation. How could a group of ostensible anti-vaccine protesters, many wonder, descend upon their city and manage to take it over? 
This is the capital of a country whose constitution calls for peace, order, and good government. Canadians are generally rule followers, and Ottawa, a quaint capital known for bureaucrats who skate along a frozen canal to work, takes that rule following to new levels. A few years ago, a parks officer in a flat jacket shut down a lemonade stand that two little girls had set up on a grassy median because they didn't have a permit. As a seat of government, protests in Ottawa are almost as common as traffic jams, regular affairs that quickly wash through. However, for almost two weeks, more than 400 truckers have made camp and settled their tractor cabs, some still attached to hulking trailers across more than a dozen blocks that Ottawa officials have deemed the red zone. Many protesters say they are here in peace. Some get on their knees and pray outside parliament. We're all family here, said Joseph Richard, 24, a beekeeper from Prince Edward Island, holding a hamburger made by a volunteer cook. He arrived in Ottawa the first weekend of the occupation. They are saying we are violent and racist and white supremacists and terrorists and a lot of demoralizing things. That's not it at all. We, he added, we are trying to spread love and peace. But there is a definite edge, like that end of the night feeling at a tailgate party when some of the crowd might have had too much to drink and things could go sideways. In part, it is the trucks, giant lumbering machines that offer more esprit de roadkill than peace. Local residents say it is far more than perception. They have been harassed on the street and recount being frightened, even chased. The police are investigating a potential arson attempt in the lobby of an apartment building downtown. The mayor declared a state of emergency. Many locals said they felt abandoned by the police. Miss Charters, Charters helped start a community safety program to send volunteers to escort frightened residents out of their buildings past the protesters for errands, walks, and even commutes. Why aren't they enforcing the law at all? The police aren't doing anything, said Miss Charters, a community activist. We are keeping each other safe. Some of the only relief has come thanks to Zexi Lee, a 21-year-old data analyst, who brought forward a class action lawsuit to silence the booming truck horns. Their incessant bellowing frayed the nerves of many living near Parliament Hill. On Monday, after lawyers presented evidence that the noise could cause serious permanent ear damage, a judge granted a 10-day injunction. Their image of a peaceful protest is not aligned with the reality, Miss Lee said of the protesters, recounting the repeated experience of being heckled for wearing a mask when she left her apartment building and then being honked at. They seemed to enjoy the terror I felt, that she said. They would laugh at it and cheer when I flinched at the honks. Now, with the injunction enforced, they've lost their only tactic, which is intimidation, she said. Many hope it will end soon and they will get their nice, placid, uneventful city back. There is a meme that's become popular, make Ottawa boring again. And this is, again, this is Emily's words, not the article. I've been seeing a lot of news coverage about these Canadian protests, and I really appreciate this local perspective on the whole ordeal. Wow. So it's been going on for like three weeks, these protests out there. It Same. feels longer than that. But yeah. It's, it's really been, for me, it's been like hard to watch, like hard to stomach. 
and I don't truly believe a lot of this. Um, it's about peace. It doesn't even make sense to me. It's about peace and family. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Exactly. You know, I don't understand that either. They really have you been seeing the images of what's going on up there? Yeah, I have, and it's 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 awful. I mean, it's the same thing. It seems like um, well, not the same thing, but very similar to. I feel like we it's early in the year and people are writing at this point. You know what I mean? I was trying to no. think as opposed to last year. You mean like you think winter should be calmer than this or? No, not at all. I just feel like it's always, you know what I mean? It's always something going on, but it's um, really sad. It's been going on. It seems like a lot of people are getting hurt. Exactly. I mean, in this one. Yeah. I mean, I've seen enough images of people that have, you know, you're in Canada waving Confederate flags and Trump flags and all this. It's like, it's not even symbols from like technically what's Canadian history. So there's a lot more going on beyond just whatever nebulous ideas of freedom or whatever that they got going on. Like, I really just, I don't buy it and I'm not going to get into it too much now, but there's a lot of people particularly like Southern politicians and like Southern U.S. politicians, like funding this, like sending lots of money Mm. to these people. So, yeah, I feel for the residents that have been taken over this way and like they're being intimidated and treated badly. Like that must be horrifying. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. And well, I think we got some good news. You got a good news story for us? I do. So this is from Al Jazeera, and the title is Woman Cured of HIV After Stem Cell Transplant. The new approach may make the treatment available to more people without the need for antiretroviral therapy. Uh, So a patient with leukemia in the United States has become the first woman and the third person to date to be cured of HIV after receiving a stem cell transplant, researchers say. The case presented on Tuesday at the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections in the U.S. city of Denver was the first involving umbilical cord blood to treat acute myeloid leukemia, which starts in blood-forming cells in the bone marrow. Since receiving the cord blood, the middle-aged woman of mixed race has been in remission and free of HIV for 14 months without the need for potent treatments known as antiretroviral therapy. The donor was naturally resistant to the virus that causes AIDS. This is now the third person. This is now the third report of a cure in this setting and the first in a woman living with HIV, Sharon Lewin, president-elect of the International AIDS Society, said in a statement. The two prior cases occurred in males, one white and one Latino, who had received adult stem cells more frequently used in bone marrow transplants. This new approach may make the treatment available to more people, according to researchers. The case is part of a wider study led by the University of California, Los Angeles, and John Hopkins University in Baltimore that follows 25 people with HIV who undergo transplants with stem cells for the treatment of cancer and other serious conditions. Patients in the trial first undergo chemotherapy to kill off the cancerous immune cells and then receive transplant stem cells from individuals with a specific genetic mutation 
in which they lack receptors used by the virus to infect cells. Scientists believe these individuals then develop an immune system resistant to HIV. Lewin said that while bone marrow transplants are not a viable strategy to cure most people living with HIV, the report confirms that a cure for HIV is possible and further strengthens using gene therapy as a viable strategy for an HIV cure. Um, so this is um, from Nate. So I'm going to jump ahead to some background. This is from nature.com. Transplanting cord blood instead of bone marrow allowed researchers to use a partially matched donor for the woman who is mixed race while giving her immune system a boost with blood from a close relative. Um, and just, you know, a little more of a general overview. If you're not aware, uh, this information is from the World Health Organization. Since the beginning of the epidemic, between 59, 55.9 and 110 million people have been infected with the HIV virus, and between 27.2 to 47.8 million people have died of HIV. Globally, 30.2 to 45.1 million were living with HIV at the end of 2021. An estimated 0.7% of adults age 15 to 49 worldwide are living with HIV, although the burden of the epidemic continues to vary considerably between countries and regions. Um, and just for the United States, um, this is from HIV.gov. Black and African-American and Hispanic Latino communities are disproportionately affected by HIV compared to other racial and ethnic groups. In 2019, Black people represented 13% of the U.S. population, but 40% of people with HIV. Hispanics and Latinos represented 18.5% of the population, but 25% of people with HIV. Some people tend to assume that only gay men or men who have sex with men can be infected with AIDS or need to be concerned about HIV and AIDS, but that is not the case. Anyone can be infected. Um, and in the United States, the rate of new HIV infections among Black women, for example, is 11 times that of white women and four times that of Latina women. So, you know, something that we all still need to be aware of, keep, you know, the awareness up about what's going on um, with HIV and AIDS and happy that there's some progress being made towards a cure. Absolutely. That was a great way to end. We're going to go ahead and take the show out. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Objection to the Rule. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track today is called Love Train, and it's by Silk Sonic. We'll see you next week. Happy Sunday. Bye. Bye.
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.